If you have your Bible, open it up with me to Titus chapter 3. I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. I want you to put your thumb in Ephesians. Um, so Ephesians and Titus 3, and that'll make sense in a little bit. This is our last week in uh, eight weeks in Titus. And uh, if you were here last week, you remember I left you with a question. And the question was pretty simple. It was meant to kind of hang in the air for a while. How do you describe your salvation? Do you remember that question? Because most people, when they think about conversion or salvation, they think very individualistic. They think, I am forgiven and I get heaven. But if you've learned anything in Titus in this eight weeks, you've learned that, that God, through the gospel, has a way bigger intention than just you being forgiven. That is part of it. That is true. We are forgiven and we do get heaven someday. But God has a plan for the church to shape us over time through the work of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the word, to shape us into the very image of Jesus. Now, I know we need glory to have that all finished, but that's where this is going. And most of us who've walked with Christ for any length of time can look back at our life and go, I've seen this change, and I've seen that change, and I don't like that. I don't desire that. I've stopped that. I do this. All these things have come because of the power of the Spirit working in us, right? So you have to include in your definition of salvation the idea of, remember I gave you this phrase, Genesis again. That's regeneration. That's the only concept the Spirit of God has for converting souls, to regenerate us. Born again, new life, right? Brand new, hearts that beat a different way, lungs that breathe a different way, lives that live a different way. So that's the burden of understanding uh, uh, salvation for us, and that's what Titus has been learning from Paul through this whole experience. Brand new life image of Christ. Well, I wanna add to that this morning because we will not understand this last paragraph in Titus unless we understand maybe a broader picture to this agenda God has for our salvation. And let me just give you the banner before we go through Ephesians for, for just a few minutes to, to make the point. Here is another huge, important aspect, goal in mind of God for our salvation. That is to bring all things under the authority of Jesus. This work of conversion in the world, the fact that Jesus came and he died and rose again was to make him the, the who is the author of life, the Lord of life in every heart, right? That's the game plan. So let me show you why this matters. Go to Ephesians chapter one. And this is, I would call, God's plan. I'm gonna screw up the pro presenter people because I gave them different passages. I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna shorten it. So if you pick up at verse uh, seven, we'll read to verse 10 of chapter one. Again, this is just like Paul. Every time he brings up some subject matter that he's uh, calling the church to or reminding us of, he starts with a gospel lens. Like, get the gospel, get the good news. And this is the so what from it. So he says in verse seven, in him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth. Are you ready for his purpose? Here's his purpose. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's got a plan, and the plan is Jesus. Preeminent authority of Jesus in the world. That's the, that's the game plan. Now, I want you to show you how he's doing that. Ephesians 2, we're going to look at 11 through 17. 
You've got headings in your Bible that will say one in Christ or the unity. But this is his point. Paul says, therefore, remember that at a time you were Gentiles. So he's talking about these people who had no concept and they weren't invited in. They were outsiders. And he's talking to Gentiles. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who you were. That's who all of us were, outside looking in, total strangers. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. That changes everything, right? Now in Christ we've been, we've been brought in. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. Verse 16 says that he might reconcile us. This is, this is how he's doing it. This is how he's bringing everything under the authority of Christ, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility that existed. How is he pulling all of this under the authority of Christ? He's dealing with the enmity that exists between sinners and God, Gentiles and Jews alike. He is taking all this war, this rebellion, and he is drawing us near. This is the gospel of grace we talk about all the time. That's, that's how he's doing it. Now look at the mystery. Look at the, look at the big idea here the, of the who's that is, is invited in chapter 3, verse 6. I'm giving you the full run of Ephesians, by the way, which is an extra benefit to you today. Uh, Verse 6, again, Paul's dealing with the mystery of this gospel revealed. He says, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. (laughs) So here's who he's working with, everybody, all kinds, shapes, and colors from all around the world. God is uniting because of Christ and his forgiveness under the authority and headship of Jesus. And that is God's big plan. And if you want to understand every bit of application Paul puts in Ephesians to the response to the gospel and what God's doing, you get chapter four, he says, therefore. And everything he says after that is how you and I treat each other. I've saved you into a body. I have made you one. I've reconciled you to myself and to others. So love each other. Be patient with each other. Walk in humility with each other. All the, all the imperatives that Paul puts down because of the gospel are to align themselves with God's greatest intention, and that is to make for himself a people united because of Christ, under the authority of Christ. Does that make sense? In fact, if you want to even go any farther in Ephesians 4, when Paul is laying down that God has given the church apostles and teachers and prophets and preachers to build up the body, the goal of building up the body is for the unity of the faith. So if you want to get one major theme of your salvation, it is the reality that you you and I are being saved and transformed and he has built us into a body in union with him. Okay, that's the, that is the big idea. United to Christ and unity with each other. That's his, his point. So think about that definition, that kind of full orb definition of your salvation as we get into this last paragraph of, a, of, of Titus because it'll be really confusing if you just jump in this uh, with cold feet, okay? So here's the reason. You won't be able to understand why Paul would finish such a beautiful letter of grace and transformation the way he does. Because this, this last paragraph is about excommunication. Welcome to church. <laughs> Nobody wants to come and hear that. I mean, I sat down with a text on, uh, on Monday and I thought, well, this is going to be a lot of fun. Like, I mean, I don't want to, I don't really instinctively want to tell you this is how hard it is sometimes. 
But I'm not going to back away from what Paul says here to Titus. We can't. We have to deal with the text. And so that's part of the accountability of preaching through the Bible verse by verse and not topically is that you end up having to deal with stuff the Spirit wants you to say in spite of what you feel like saying. And so we've got to say these things. So with all the grace you can muster, extend it to me. Okay, because when we talk about these hard, rigid things that Paul is talking about in these couple of sentences, know that I didn't write them, but I'm just like you, having to submit to the word of God, knowing that the spirit knows way more what what needs to happen than I do, okay? So let's just make that kind of a mutual agreement. Let's read this, um, and let's pray and ask for the spirit's help to understand it. Um, So... Let's read together verses 8 through 11. I'm going to add verse 8 from last week just for contextual reasons. But here's what he says in the positive light. The saying, the gospel saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Here you go. Brace yourself. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's pray together. God, I ask for your spirit's presence here in, in this study. I pray for your help, for your guidance and your protection. Don't let me say anything that you don't intend to say. I pray that it's clear, crystal clear, that your spirit would do the teaching in our hearts that we'd, be, we'd leave encouraged um, for the good things that you, you have done for us and that you love the church so much more than we do. That's the explanation of a passage like this. Help us, Father, to see it from your side of the street, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. At first glance, a passage like this after gospel and gospel transformation could seem a little out of place and possibly or maybe mostly uncomfortable. Is that fair? Anybody in here feel uncomfortable with a passage about get rid of them? I mean, if you do, you're not alone because I do. I, f- I feel that way. Um, and I kind of assume some reasons why, okay? Um, this idea of excommunication sounds so medieval, doesn't it? It's 2016. We're so much more mature than this, right? We don't have to do this anymore. Actually, isn't church more defined about it being inclusive than exclusive? Isn't it supposed to be more broad that anybody with anything can just hang out and be around the edges? Isn't that the way church is supposed to be defined? And and I get that. I get that idea. I, I can understand where that comes from. But maybe we start with that understanding that, that this thing is so antiquated, um, I think there's another probably more prominent reason because there's nobody I have ever met who leans into this kind of conflict. Most of us spend our life avoiding it. Fair? You want proof? Come to our counseling sessions. Every marriage and kid thing in the world is about not dealing with things. It's about operating at the level of peace at all costs. Don't say it. Don't deal with it. Just ignore it, and it festers, right? Like any kind of wound would fester, and so we avoid conflict. We avoid the problem. We love our comfort more than anything else. Confrontation makes me uncomfortable, therefore what? Ignore it. I think that's probably more universal than, than we'll be willing to admit, but let me tell you what I think probably is more true to why this passage would feel uncomfortable. Because first of all, I think, let's just believe the best about ourselves. We might be ignorant, if not naive, about the disruptive power of division. 
Like, I don't really think, we think that, oh my gosh, division is that big of a deal? Give it some time. Ignore it long enough. Like, division isn't that big of a crisis. Clearly, Paul's overreacting, or, or I don't understand what these genealogy wars are about, so if I did, maybe it's that level. We don't have that type of thing, so maybe we're just a little bit ignorant or naive. But, but I really feel like there's one thing that hits my heart more than anything else, which I think um, maybe it might be applicable to you. I think the reason why a passage like this makes us uncomfortable is because we do not love the body of Christ like Jesus does. We just don't. And so when he lays down standards for behavior and how to protect and develop unity and guard it, and it looks harsh to us, we kind of measure the value of the body. And go, it's not that important. We can just, we can compromise on those things because after all, we're just gonna all just coast. Jesus loves the body. Jesus loves the body more than you can ever dream. That's why Jesus says things about godliness and living and holiness. That's why he says things about dealing with dissensions and divisions within the church. That's why it looks so difficult for us is because he cares at a level way higher than you do and he understands how cataclysmic that, that issue is more than we do. So that's some of the realities. Let's jump into this. Let me, let me get a running start so we at least in verse eight feel really good about the gospel again before we get into the trouble of nine through uh, 11. But here's what he said in verse eight just to remind us again. The saying is trustworthy that I insist that you do. And that's, that's trustworthy saying is the gospel of God's grace through Christ alone. That's the thing we've been talking about over and over again. Paul says, insist on it so that your people who will live out of it will devote themselves to good deeds. Go and live differently because of this gospel of God's grace. And here's a big reason why. It is profitable and it's excellent. And we unpacked that, this advantageous for you and other people, like everyone around you in your life and in your own heart will be benefited by your good deeds through the lens of God's grace. That's why Paul says this whole thing. It's good. It's just good. You know, we did that broccoli illustration. This is more like ice cream good for the church. You're going to love this when we do this. People will be blessed and your heart will be moved. That's what he says about excellent and, and profitable. That's what we are to pursue or insist on. But here in these last three verses, Paul finishes with a negative of all things, an imperative, a command, a warning. And I want to go back, just, just tag up again on Ephesians Remember why this is here, because Paul suggests that unity is another aspect, another prism, another little facet of this salvation that God is doing. God is building himself a people in line with him, in union with each other. That's one part of our salvation. It's the plan of God. And so in Paul's mind, anything foolish that gets in the way of that unity needs to be confronted head on. He's passionate about it. That's why it comes across so like matter of fact. Don't mess with God's bride. So I've laid this kind of out in three particular points. If you like outlines, here it is. There are things to avoid, there are people to confront, and there are people to exclude. Let's deal with the things to avoid in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The word avoid means to get distance from, get away from, avoid it. Foolish is where we get the English word moron or moronic. So just put it all together. Avoid moronic discussions. Clear enough? That's what, what's what he says here. 
And before I tell you what, what I think is going on in these controversies and arguments about genealogy and the nature of the law, let me just deal with what it's not, okay? Um, avoiding foolish controversies is not just thinking about anything you want to avoid and saying, well, that's foolish because I'm not interested in it. That's not the standard of how you determine what's a foolish argument. Because if you know anything about the scriptures, Jesus confronted, did he not? I mean, he went after the Pharisees and the scribes. He called them names. He called them out. The apostle Paul dealt with the authorities in, in Rome. He clearly made points. They had debates. They had disagreements. And it was all about who Jesus is. His nature is God. His name of Messiah. He, he made it clear that this dividing line became between them and their self-righteousness and a righteousness not of their own, that they needed redemption. They needed to be born again. They needed to see their issue, their heart issue was bigger than they could possibly deal with with religion. They needed a savior. And Jesus went after all that stuff. So did Paul over and over again declaring the absolute truth of the gospel. That's the controversial issues. And just so you know, we live in 2016 and Jesus is just as controversial as he's ever been. Because this is what he says. I am the way, the truth, the life, and nobody gets salvation without me. Nobody. So you know this. I don't have to tell you this. But if you go out in our world and you tell them about the exclusivity of the gospel, the beauty but the narrowness of the way, well, they're going to check out right quick, aren't they? They're going to call you somewhat a name or two. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with controversies over the absolute truth. Neither does Paul, neither does Jesus, neither does the Bible. So we're not talking about things that are legitimate, okay? So avoiding foolish controversy isn't just avoiding controversies altogether because we have to deal with that if we're gospel people. But here's what Paul's referring to specifically here in this passage. These foolish controversies have to do with issues that have no biblical backing. They're just man-made. Like someone said it, and because they're in some position and the Bible doesn't say it, they can put out these foolish thoughts. Someone said, someone smarter than me a long time ago, that um, where Scripture is silent, God is silent, so you be silent. Maybe that's a good rule of thumb. God's pretty clear telling the church what the truth is and how to live the truth. When it's not there, don't say that it is. Those are the foolish controversies that these these people, uninformed about faith, were kind of contributing to their story, okay? Genealogies went like this. There was uh, some of these Jewish folks were tracing their lineage, their Jewish roots, and if they could find somebody important, uh, they would claim some level of superiority over others, right? I'm connected to whoever. Therefore, I am somebody. That was their arguments, this dissensions and quarrels about the law. You know what this is like. This has always been around. This is the legalism two-step. Someone takes a passage, and they build a case against what you do or what you, what you should do, right? They do that. And, and, and by the way, there's this, there's this kind of maybe unspoken, maybe spoken a little bit tension in the church that somehow over time we're getting sharper and more mature and clearer about something. We're not. When I was growing up, you couldn't play with cards. This is my dad, okay, Baptist hardcore, couldn't play with cards, couldn't dance, um, no beer, um, movies were bad, dancing was bad. There was a clear list of things you don't do. Anybody been there? And you think, well, that's so gone, man, that's gone. But I have lived in this church, this church for 20 years, and people argue about parenting. 
How you raise your kids, God's way, not God's way. Where you put them in school, that used to be a war, like a war. Do you vaccinate? Do you not? Seriously, you're grinning because you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. When it comes to where decisions are made in a leadership team that have absolutely nothing to do with what the scriptures say, it's just like leadership decisions. Should we build this building? Should we put that many people in it? Should we play these songs? Should we play it that loud? People want to war about foolish things. Again, just these are Paul's words, moronic stories. And if you think we're beyond that, we're more mature than that, it's not true. And Paul gets after these things that cause division. And he calls them out for what they are. They're silly and they're selfish. That's the first thought. He emphatically says to avoid, to get distance from things like that. He calls them what they are, unprofitable and worthless. If you're paying attention to the text, it's the exact opposite of what he said good works do. Good works are profitable and excellent. They benefit you and everybody else. That's what good works do. These things are just the opposite. Unprofitable is the word noxious. I was painting my car yesterday and I was wearing a respirator. You know why? Because the fumes are noxious. They will, I will pass out. So just picture that when it comes to these things that are noxious to a church. They'll cause harm to the church. He says they're worthless. It's like silly or pointless. It would be the equivalent of the man who decided to build his house on sand. I want a mansion. I'll build it on some unstable footing. Ah, you're a fool. Or, or the writer in Ecclesiastes who says, go ahead, chase after the wind. This kind of foolish activity thinks you can catch it. That's what the writer says. That's what Paul is referring to. Now, those are things we are to avoid, things that the Bible doesn't say, making it up, trying to create divisions for things that are personal, okay? Here's the second thing I think that Paul says in verse 10. He says we're to, there are people to confront. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with it. Now, I, I kind of squinted and breathed hard when I was studying this. Like, I don't want to say this. I don't really want to say it. Um, there's so much contextual things that, that would help us understand that love is the, the reason, but, but here it is. Nevertheless, we got to deal with it. It feels so harsh. Here's the only reason why I spent those five minutes in Ephesians. Because if you don't include unity in your understanding of what God has done, is doing in the church, then this will not matter to you. And you will not see it as anything more than harsh, unloving. You won't see it as, as love. God cares about the uni unity of the church so much. It's so much more important to him. Um, it's more important than how you instinctively feel about confronting things like that or necessarily how motivated you are to deal with them. Paul is blunt because the church's health and stability and unity is at stake. It's at stake. You want an explanation for why there are so many churches in the world? It's because we didn't care about this for the most part. I know there's some theological divergencies. I'm okay with that. But unity, unity, Paul says, guard it. And here's how he says to do it. He says to warn that person. The warning is a cease and desist order. Again, I'm not making this up. I'm just telling you what Paul said. It is to stop the words, the works, and the attitude. Stop it. Warn them once. Warn them twice. And that's what you do, church. That's what we do. 
Um, this has happened a couple times in my lifetime where, you know, somebody in leadership doing a Bible study or whatever, someone does something probably not the smartest, not evil, not sinful, just not helpful, you know. We could do that again. If we had a chance, we'd do it different, that kind of a thing, you know. But people rally, and they rally, and they rally, and here's how they rally, with gossip and slander. And they get little groups together, and they start to talk about leadership or talk about this. We've had times where we've sat down with them and said, listen, we could have done things differently, but that doesn't explain your sin. You are not to gossip and not to slander. That is not biblically acceptable. You can't do that. Those are tough situations. No, nobody wants to, to call out like that, but the, the Bible's clear, and for a reason, for the sake of preserving unity in the church, there is a biblical mandate of how to do stuff, and it's not confusing at all. We're going to get to that in, at the end in just a second, but protect the church. So Paul gives us a couple of things. There are things to avoid. There are people to confront. Here's the last one, the most uncomfortable. There are people to exclude where he says at the end of verse 10, have nothing more to do with him. That phrase is one word in the original language and the word is reject. I'll define that in a second, that it's as bad as it sounds, okay? Um, we were thinking about how to finish the worship service today and I thought, well, how could we follow this up? Maybe with Tom Petty's song, Don't Come Around Here No More, would be a good conclusion to the sermon and everyone would leave encouraged, but, but probably ain't gonna happen. Um, I know this sounds hard. Let me tell you why. Verse, verse 11, Paul tells us why. He says, here's why you have nothing more to do with him. Here's why you reject him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Paul knows. And what we need to understand is for a person to get that sideways and to stay in that condition in their divisive actions, it means something. It means the person is self-centered and self-absorbed means that he is unteachable, and Paul basically says right here that their rejection of these multiple warnings is an exposure of their character, and when their character is that dark, that's when you reject. That's what he says here. Paul says clearly in verse 11, when he uses the word warped, what he's talking about. The word warped means twisted or perverted, and by the way, the text or, or the tense of the verb that he uses for for warped is, is this present tense, which in Paul's clarity, it was this kind of condition. This isn't a one-off problem. This isn't a oops. This isn't I had a bad day. I woke on the wrong side of the bed kind of an issue. This is a consistent behavior in this divisive person. That's the tense that he uses. It's, it's not a temporary condition. This is his life. And the only thing a person of that character who's divisive can do with that kind of life is spread the disease. That's all they can do. They can only spread the distortion around them. Paul goes so far as to say at the end of verse 10, he's self-condemned. Now, there is not a more rigid description of unbelief in Paul's mind than that. So just hang on to your hats. You don't have to worry about whether this person gets a fair shake or not. Because this rejection of this biblical rebuke proves the lack of inward grace to even respond to the rebuke. There's nothing home. Do you understand? If the Spirit of God's working in the heart and you call a sinner out, a believing sinner out on his sin, there is a move, there's a, there's a conviction, there are sharp elbows to the Spirit of God. But this person, nobody's home. He's self-condemned. 
It's proof that they don't believe. Paul says emphatically, and it's imperative, church, it's no, no the way to say this, a command, reject them. So, and he says it for good reasons, for the sake of others, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the church's health and unity and for the gospel's sake and for the testimony of the church in, in your world. That's why. So, so let me tell you how firm this word reject means. It simply means the end of relationship. It means the end of involvement or the end of fellowship. It doesn't sound fun, does it? That's what it means. And there's a couple reasons why it seems so absolute. Because that person, that divisive person who is of such character that he will not turn from his divisiveness, he needs to know that you are not with him. He needs to know that you will not support his words or his actions or his division. That's what he needs to know. That's why the rejection is there. He also needs to know that you're unlike him and that you submit to God's word. And, and let me put another one, which to me is more powerful, really. The reason why we do this is out of humility. Let me explain what I mean by that. You and I need to be humble enough to admit what the scripture says, that bad company really does corrupt good character. That you and I understand the propensity to be affected by the poison of division. It's in us. Do you think these divisions would ever go anywhere if no one entertained them? Of course not. But our propensity to go, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And you embrace it. And you own someone's offense, knowing half the story or maybe even less. But humility says, man, I'm prone. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to believe the wrong things or hear half the story and build a case. I'm prone to be that person, so I'm just going to obey the Bible. That's what I'm going to do. This is what Paul says to do. Let me finish in the six minutes that I have left with a clarifying thought. Um, I was thinking about ending it somewhere here, but, but all the commentaries I read packaged Titus 3 up in a discussion about church discipline. And if you're not familiar with church discipline, let me describe to you what it is. Church discipline is a role that church plays in a believer's life when they're in sin to, to encourage them to turn from their sin. In fact, most of it's built on the backbone of Matthew 18, Jesus' instructions when it says, when a brother sins against you, go to your brother. Remember that? Most of you have read that passage, but the sequence goes like this. Your brother in sin, he sinned against you. You go to your brother and you show him your, his sin. And if he, he hears you, listens to you, you've won your brother. End of story. Nothing needs to go any further. Restoration, unity, everything that Jesus died to make the church. But if he doesn't listen to you, take a witness or two. And show him his sin. If he sees his sin and turns from his sin, you've won your brother. Great, unity. Just everything the gospel was destined to give us. But if he doesn't listen to, the, to you and a couple of witnesses, tell it to the church. Now, this is where it gets really uncomfortable and not popular or common in our day. We have done this a handful of times in Redemption Gilbert's history where we've actually come to the church and said, our brother, our sister, so-and-so is in sin. Um, but the whole goal of even that step is when you tell the church the, the loving pressure of a body on a sinner who can't see is to turn them from their sin. And it says if he, if he turns from his sin, great, restoration and unity. But if he doesn't turn from his sin with telling the church, there is a kind of, I, I guess, a worst case scenario. There's a change in the relationship. And it goes like this. Treat him as a Gentile or a tax gatherer. That's Jesus' words, by the way. Not an end of relationship, a change of relationship. Do you see? 
And, and I've always struggled, to be honest with you, with even the phrase of church discipline because it's not contextual. It's not even in the text. People have used it to describe, and it sounds more punitive than I prefer it to, to be. Here's what I personally think Matthew 18 is all about. It's restorative. Like the goal is sinners, we're all sinners, loving another sinner to his senses. We're trying to restore them to their senses and to the relationships that they have in the, in the church. It's restorative. That's not at all Titus' intention. That's where this is different. You've got to see it. Other than the similarity of the call out, which that is a part of it. And, and to be honest with you, um, it's always the hope that even any kind of call out or any kind of call on sin will turn them from their sin. But Titus here, Paul's instruction to, to this young pastor, is not at all trying to do anything but one thing. Protect. Matthew 18 is dealing with a brother who's sinned. This is not called a brother. This is a person who's bringing division to the church, his bride. He says, protect the church. That's why it goes down like this. In Paul's mind, nothing could be more opposite to the good works that we are to excel in than the factious, divisive actions of a warped person stirring up tensions in the body of Christ. That's just the opposite of everything I've just taught you for three and a half chapters. So, Paul says, protect the church church. So like last week, I've got parting questions. (laughs) And I'm certain you'll just think about it, but does the unity of the church, like Paul described in Ephesians, matter to you? What do you think? Does it really matter? How much? How much? Are you, are you so into Christ's definition of why he came and what he's doing, this definition of unity in the gospel for the gospel's sake? Are you so in love with that that you're willing to protect the church from division? I, I was uh, talking to the guys earlier just about being uncomfortable throwing at this topic, um, but I also stopped to just think, and I, I think I was talking to somebody at the men's barbecue on Friday night. It is just such a sweet spot we're in. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even pull out an illustration of something like this in our church. That's good. Okay, that's really good. I, I, there's no like, immediate application to it. But I guess I'm just saying it generally to us. Do we care enough about the biblical definition of the gospel and the church that we're willing to protect it? Seems like a reasonable question, right? If that's true, let me give you some tips. Because it always goes down this way. Always goes down this way. People entertain slander. They do. Someone said it way smarter than me. Be a cul-de-sac, not a street. Meaning when stuff comes your way, it stops with you. It doesn't keep going down the road. You understand? And most of the times what happens is we, we listen and there's a part of us that really care for the person. So we think care is listening. Care is entertaining. Care is owning the other person's offense. That is not at all the biblical model of how we treat our brothers who are sideways. Here's what the Bible says. You go, go and deal with them. Go face to face and deal with the problem. So, so we've got some pragmatic things to do as a church. If it ever shows up, I pray it never does, but if there's ever anything sideways and it ends in the conversation of foolish, silly things, building your house on sand kind of conversations, just let it die with you. Does that make sense? Shake your head if you hear me. Okay. I know this is very, this is uncomfortable for me. I, I was in the back afterwards going, is there any other way to say it? And I don't know. Maybe there's smarter men than me, but I hear my heart on this. I love you. 
I don't see problems. I haven't seen stuff like this. I just want to be ready. And here it is in the text and we're dealing with it. Make sense? Okay. Well, let's pray and ask for the Spirit's guidance. God, I thank you so much for um, this study in Titus, how we have been reminded and we have learned about the beauty of the gospel, this transformative gospel that radically changes who we are and blesses the world around us. God, I guess in, in Paul's mind to this church in Crete, one of the things to be cautious about was things that would jeopardize the unity for which Christ died. I have to confess that my value of unity isn't as great as yours. So God, for me and those who are like me, I pray you would convict us about how important that is to you. I pray that if ever, if ever, and I pray it never happens, but if we ever have to deal with things that look like division, that God will respond in a biblical way because we love your church. God, we ask for grace to do that. We pray in Christ's name, amen.